What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you're trying to get that question answered and, and the answers that you're getting from various folks just are not, they're, they're not scratching the itch. They're not satisfactory. Let's get the real answers uh, from, well, don't want to say the horse's mouth, but let's 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 get the real answers so that you can uh, move on with your life. Here's our phone number: eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial one and then two zero five two seven one. 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. Our address ctc at ewtn.com. Ctc at ewtn.com. Michael McCall is our producer today. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will spy those questions. He'll send them to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can get those questions answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Brian. Uh, This is an email we received a couple days ago. Why do you use Maccabees to defend the doctrine of purgatory? Maccabees is not part of the Bible. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, yes, it is. <laughs> and who says? Mm. Right? But let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that it's not. Okay. I, I, I believe it is part of the Bible. But let's assume for the sake of argument it's not part of the Bible. Isn't it a witness to the belief of Jews in the Second Temple period? It's an historical witness to what was actually believed in practice at the Judaism of the time, the Judaism that was the context in which early Christianity took root and grew and expressed itself. Uh-huh. So even if you deny its canonicity, you can't deny its historical value for indicating what common belief and practice was among Jews at the time, right? And, uh, and that helps us make sense of early Christian practice, which was continuous with that of Judaism. But now let's, let's talk about the status, the, the canonical status of the Book of Maccabees. So the question I would like to ask you is, how do you know what makes a book canonical? Or rather, I should say, how do you know which books belong in the canon? That's a better question. Okay. All right. All right. How do you know what books belong in the canon? The Catholic answer to that question is that Christ established the teaching church. He said that he did. He said, thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Mm-hmm. Uh, go into all nations and teach everything I've commanded you. Make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. <clears throat> um, Christ established the teaching church said the gates of hell would not prevail against it, gave it the authority to teach, made provision for handing on the Christian faith through those authoritative teachers that he established in the Catholic tradition, and that it is on the the authority of the Catholic Church founded by Jesus that we know what books belong in the biblical canon, because the bishops of the Catholic Church met in council and made a determination that these books and not others are to be understood to be canonical and inspired. If you deny the authority of the Catholic Church or of Catholic tradition, 
then you don't have any principled basis, any objective grounds for, for adjudicating questions of canonicity or not. Right? So if you're a Protestant, on what, on what grounds uh, do you claim to know which books are inspired or canonical? Uh, well, most Protestants that I know would argue that, well, you know, we, we look to tradition because it's faithfully handed on the canon, but we don't think it's canonical because of tradition. Tradition is kind of a witness to it. Okay, well, it's canonical, then how do you know it's canonicity? Right? If tradition's thrown it up for your consideration, uh-huh. how do you validate the judgment of tradition if it's not through the authority of tradition? The typical Protestant answer is, God told me. God told me. Some kind of interior religious experience or immediate intuition. In other words, a subjective criteria, not an objective one. But of course, that, that, can, that can cut any way you want to cut. I mean, that's what the Mormons say. Uh, you know, that's, anybody can propose any standard and say, well, God told me. Well, how do you validate that claim that God told you? So the Protestant position just collapses into subjectivism, basically. And the, the Catholic position is an objective grounds for belief in the canon. And, and as a matter of practical uh, course, when I grew up Protestant, I didn't believe that, say, the book of Esther was divinely inspired because God whispered in my ear. I believed it because my parents told me so. Sure, sure. All right. And uh, Brian, thanks so much for your email. Quick one now from Brad, who says, I am born again. Why would I want to be a Catholic? Yeah, well, it kind of depends on what you mean by born again. Um, so what, when many Protestants use the term born again, they the, what they intend by that is that I have had a conversion experience and invited Jesus to come live in my heart. And that's interesting. I understand that position. I used to hold that myself. Um, when I began to study the history of that position, what I discerned was that that claim that to be born again uh, is identified with this moment of Christian initiation that comes through personal conversion, like going forward to the Billy Graham crusade, that kind of thing. That idea really is nowhere in Christian history. Uh, the seeds of it until, uh, say, the 18th century and the, the, the fully formed expression of modern evangelical born-againism, we don't really find until the beginning of the, of the 20th century. So it's, uh, it's definitely not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not historic Christianity. So, for example, if you, if you go peruse the works of uh, John Calvin, who was, of course, a very important Protestant theologian, uh-huh. you will, you'll never find the claim that one becomes a Christian by inviting Jesus into their heart. You don't find that claim. Calvin is, a, is at one with the Catholic faith in believing that what makes a person a Christian is baptism. Uh, Luther, absolutely adamant on that point. He's at one with Catholics on that, that, mm. that to be born again is to be baptized. This is a rite of initiation into the Christian church. So if you mean what I think you mean by being born again, I mean, the reason you would want to call this uh, peculiar doctrine into question is that it, uh, it's entirely novel. No one until, say, the 18th, but you know, fully until the 20th century, even believed that way. I wrote an article about this for the Call to Communion website called um, Have You Been Born Again? Um, I think it was, uh, that's the subtitle, I believe, is Calvin's Doctrine of... No, I can't remember the subtitle. But the title is, How Have You Been Born Again? And yeah, it's a consideration yeah. of, of, uh, of the modern evangelical view of conversion versus classical Protestant and Catholic understandings of that question. Very good. By the way, that website, calledtocommunion.com, features the writings of Dr. David Andrews and a number of other great writers. You may want to check that out when you get a minute. calledtocommunion.com. Hey, the phones are on fire today. We have one line open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to Communion for you with Dr. David Andrews on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. 
Thanks for joining us for Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. When a line becomes available, you're invited to jump in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second. Hey, let me tell you about an EWTN radio tradition. We've been uh, doing this for a number of years now. It's the 48 Hours of Christmas. Join us all day Christmas Eve day and all day Christmas Day itself. Special programming, uh, music from around the world, and so much more. That includes the World Over Christmas special with Raymond Arroyo and his musical guests. Also Christmas with the nuns of Our Lady of the Angels Monastery and a classic from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, Superman, and Christmas. Check it out. It's the 48 Hours of Christmas, starting Christmas Eve morning, and I mean early in the morning, like midnight, only on EWTN Radio. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Veronica, a first-time caller from Massachusetts, listening on the Station of the Cross. Hey there, Veronica. Blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call, and I just wanted to say you, your show single-handedly um, took me from a cradle Catholic who knew nothing um, about what it meant to be a Catholic to someone who knows a little bit more and am learning. Um, so I feel like I, I put both feet in, but the problem is that I have, I'm always looking over my shoulder for the other shoe to drop, and right now I'm, I'm quite. I'm nervous about um, the recent uh, alien thing, and I and I know Dr. Anders, you've mentioned that you're skeptical because there hasn't been any evidence. But for some reason, if I don't know, I'm just so scared that this is this is the the other shoe that like oh, it was too good to be true. This isn't um, this isn't. I don't know. I'm I'm and when people say you know um, there's no evidence yet, it it's almost like it sets off a red flag. Like, well, what if, you know, can you answer the question as if there was evidence and, and we, you know, is, is everything still okay? Okay. Let me ask you a question because you said something and I'm not sure I heard you correctly. Did, did, did I hear okay. you say something about the recent alien thing? Did you use that phrase? Yeah. Like there's now there's like a rear admiral, there's people coming out, all these whistleblowers that seem like credible sources. And I'm just, as okay. Okay. So I see. So, so your 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 difficulty is, you you hesitate to give yourself entirely to the Catholic faith, because you think that the 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 universe, the cosmos, might end up being so vastly different from the Christian worldview, that we may we may live in a vast universe, uh, peopled by intelligent aliens, and just so incredibly different from Christianity that you'd hate to you'd hate to give yourself all over to Catholicism only to find out that you'd been duped when when you know so the, the veil gets ripped off tomorrow and and all of a sudden we've joined the the federation and the Vulcans have come am, am I am I understanding correctly yeah okay all right so um uh, th- there's a book that I would recommend you take a look at it's not by a catholic it's got nothing to do with the catholic faith it's by a psychologist named Susan Clancy and uh, the title of the book is Abducted, How People Come to Believe That They Were Kidnapped by Aliens. And it's, it's really a fascinating study in the fallibility of memory and the ability of people to either invent or have suggested to them false memories that they come to believe are true. And Clancy's a, a research psychologist who, who demonstrates, I think, pretty conclusively that, that memory is very fallible 
And in fact, her research went a long way to undercutting um, some of the principles of evidence in uh, in criminal convictions in American courts because it was so compelling. And this this doesn't necessarily go to the specific cases that you've mentioned, but but she she goes in not only to the difficulties of memory in terms of you know people who have memories of abductions or alien experiences, but also the larger culture surrounding the alien abduction hypothesis and and uh, and uh, the kind of cult that's that's surrounded, the kind of meaning that people seek. Uh, through their interest in aliens. Anyway, I, I just I really would strongly recommend you t- that you look at the text. But for my purposes, even if uh, Mr. Spock showed up tomorrow and and or you know the Romulans or whoever it was, if we entered into that kind of cosmology, it really wouldn't have any effect on my decision to live the Catholic faith, really at all. I mean, I would continue to be a follower of Jesus and and uh, and a practitioner of the Catholic faith, even if uh, even if the aliens came and you know sat politely at the back of the Mass and, and watched and, and, and took notes, right? Uh, because what the Catholic faith teaches is that Christ assumed a human nature and that he did so so that I can be transformed into his likeness and image and, and live an entirely different ethical kind of life, a higher kind of life, where, uh, where I love the truth, the good, and the beautiful, and am perfected in charity and virtue. And if the Romulans come, or the Vulcans come, or the Klingons come, that still seems to me to be uh, a worthy aspiration, a worthy goal, a direction for my life to take, that I be perfected after the likeness and image of Jesus. And I mean, th- this, uh, th- a number of Catholic and, and Christian writers over the years have speculated about what would happen if we encountered uh, intelligent alien life. And, and uh, the, the Anglican writer C.S. Lewis wrote a science fiction trilogy about this, beginning with the novel Out of the Silent Planet, which I commend to your attention. Uh, it's one author's attempt to think about that question, um, and uh, but he's not the only one. There are others that I could give you as well. So yeah, I don't think that it. Um, uh, I mean, personally, I think that it's entirely possible that there is uh, organic life on the planets. It's a pretty vast universe. God, I mean, just the the existence of the the oceans and the diversity of life in the oceans, life species that we'll probably never know. Yeah. Right. That are incredibly diverse and and bizarre and strange all testify to the magnificence and the inexhaustibleness of God's creative beauty. I don't know why that same principle wouldn't apply to to, to all the stars. Veronica, thanks so much uh, for your call. Uh, that uh, hope, Hopefully that is helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to our friend Andre in Trinidad, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hello, Andre. What's on your mind today, sir? Season's greetings, Tom and Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Now, um, back in 2000, I met a music producer with whom I'm still quite friendly and whose mother is a very well-known devout Catholic in our diocese. He appears not too committed to the faith, and it seems he and his wife have opted not to raise their children in any faith. But he once presented his doubt to me specifically about John 17 and how plausible it could be that the Apostle remembered so much of Jesus' priestly prayer. What I think he was assuming was that that prayer was private. That doubt stuck with me over the years in light of my own efforts to document my youth mission in the high-risk area for over 14 years. Understand I'm not questioning the content, but the method and role of memory in Scripture. As Christ promised, the Holy Spirit will reveal to them teachings and recollections of the Apostles. My question is, how do we account for such accuracy and volume of content in the apostolic age? 
And what do you think, Dr. Anderson, I could have a stay to put his doubts at ease? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there are a couple different approaches to this. One is we could produce arguments for the reliability of the gospel writer's memory and the likelihood that their account of Jesus's ministry is highly historically accurate. Uh, one book that takes that line by the is by the evangelical biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce. He has a, t- a volume entitled The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? When I was in the Protestant seminary, I was a big fan of that text. One time I had committed most of its arguments to memory. Really? Yeah, I liked it so much. I have, I have since forgotten them. I couldn't, I couldn't <clears throat> pull it out of you know, my back pocket the way I used to be able to. But it, it, it's, a, it's a compelling argument for the historical accuracy of the Gospels. And he goes into the way that oral tradition would have been transmitted in antiquity and what kind of evidence there is for its reliability, that kind of thing. Uh, I've shifted my opinions uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, 30 years or whatever since leaving seminary, and and this kind of question bothers me less now. Uh, Even when I was still in the Protestant seminary, I learned a distinction that biblical scholars use between what they call ipsissima vox and ipsissima verba, meaning the very voice and the very words. Uh, And uh, it was a distinction. I'm not even sure if Catholics use this distinction, but I learned it from Protestants, and I thought it made sense at the time. And it was the idea that the Scripture can convey uh, Jesus's concepts without being a uh, a faithful, you know, stenographer's account of his very words, mm. and that that made sense to me. Um, t- today, I am much more willing to credit the gospel writers as creative theologians who are relaying a tradition that they're intimately familiar with because they live it. They're practitioners of the Christian faith in their respective decades. But they shape the oral tradition and the traditional material according to their own theological criteria. And, and it was common practice in the ancient world when, say, you know, Herodotus would do this, for example, when writing history, to place speeches in the mouths of famous people. And the speeches may, in fact, have been compositions of the writers themselves, not, yeah. the, not the original orators. Um, kind of like the way you would put a soliloquy in the mouth of one of Shakespeare's characters, you know, to, to, to convey a message and you put it in somebody else's mouth. Mm-hmm. And since the Catholic doctrine is that the gospel writers were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it recognizes that the conventions of genre go into biblical interpretation, uh-huh. if it is the common practice in the genre of historical writing in antiquity to do that, there's no reason that I should be troubled by the thought that the Holy Spirit might guide and superintend uh, is a, a a late um, uh, a, a classical historian's um, sort of creative shaping of the material, placing his own voice in it, even if you will, in order to make a theological point that's nevertheless faithful to the tradition. And so I don't uh, I, I don't for my purposes I'm untroubled by the thought that this is not a word for word historical account of Jesus's last words. Um, a a Catholic scholar who would who would have a very famous Catholic scholar who wrote commentaries on John's Gospel, who would take that position more or less, would be Raymond Brown. And you might look at Raymond Brown's uh, commentaries on the Gospel of John. He has an introduction to the Gospel of John. He has um, a commentary on the Gospel of John. 
He has a famous book on the so-called Johannine community, number of books by Raymond Brown on uh, on John's gospel and the writer of the fourth gospel that you might want to take a look at. And he, he was held in high regard by Pope Paul VI, Raymond Brown was. Andre, thanks so much for your call from Trinidad. Very glad to hear from you today here on Call to Communion on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to uh, Matthew in Wenatchee, Washington, listening on <coughs> KEFA, K-E-F-A. Matthew, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so tonight I am giving a presentation to an RCIA group, and the topic is the Nicene Creed. I just had two questions on the creed here. Um, I've got Volume 5 of Ancient Christian Doctrine on my desk, and um, Augustine and Caesar of Arles, I think, were talking about um, how the Church began with Abel, or it was just an Abel. I always thought it was from the Pentecost, so wondering if you could comment on how we view the Church in the Old Testament, and then also Dr. Andrews, since I'll be talking to people who are just in Catholicism, I was wondering when you were converting what relationship you had with the Creed and what were some issues in the Creed that you were wrestling with before you became Catholic. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, um, St. Augustine wrote a very famous book in about the year 410 called The City of God, and, uh, in which he lays out a kind of salvation historical timeline from the creation of the world to the end of time and in which he associates all of the godly, all of the righteous from the beginning of time to the end of time, and he refers to them not as the church, but as the city of God. Um, and, uh, and so following Augustine, it's not uncommon to use the word church, meaning, you know, God's gathered people, if you will, in a very broad sense, like Augustine did, to refer to all of those people of goodwill who have sought the true God and, and to do his will, either more or less explicitly down through the centuries. But, of course, those people have been enriched by prophetic witness and divine revelation. Uh, first, of course, in the call of Abraham and, and, uh, and the commission of Moses and the Ten Commandments and the law, which rendered uh, God's will and God's presence more manifest. But then ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus and the foundation of the Christian church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where his, uh, where his will is most manifest and the means of grace most efficacious, those intrinsically efficacious means that we call the sacraments. And so in a strict sense, we would speak of the Church being born at Pentecost when uh, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the gathered company of the disciples. But in a broader sense, we can talk about the history of the Church running back to the beginning of time, which is the way Augustine does in the City of God. Uh, In terms of my own relationship to the Creed, uh, I was raised in a kind of quasi-creedal tradition. I grew up a Presbyterian, and we were less liturgical and creedally organized than some Presbyterians, but we, we would recite the Apostles' Creed with some regularity, and on special occasions we would recite the Nicene Creed. And of course, when I was a Protestant theologian, Protestant theology student, a part of Protestantism involves the claim that Protestantism is a recovery of the ancient Christian tradition. I think that claim is utterly spurious and and uh, fabulous, and I don't believe it at all, but but now, but at the time I did, and so the ability to lay claim to, say, the fourth century um, Christology was part and parcel of what it meant to be a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or Episcopalian. So we, we didn't have any problem with the Nicene Creed. I, you know, I, I would have confessed the Nicene Creed. I think the only point of difference for me as a Protestant would have been um, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Of course, we understood those, we said those words, we meant, we meant something different by them than what Catholics mean. All right, appreciate that. And uh, Matthew, thanks for your call from Wenashee, Washington. It's called a communion here on EWTN. 
in a moment, we're going to uh, grab some more great emails that we have received from you over the past couple of weeks. Also, we'll hear from Jack in Sashi, Texas. Rick, a first-time caller from Illinois. Mike in Ludington, Michigan. Also a call from Cincinnati. Max in Utah. And uh, if a line does become available, we'd love to get you on as well. 833-288-EWTN. Maybe you have a question about Advent. Well, this is the place to get that question answered. 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on the third week of Advent on Tuesdays af- Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Now we've got a line open for you, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN Radio family, our friends there at Catholic Community Radio, serving Baton Rouge and New Orleans, now celebrating unbelievable 14 years with us congratulations to david dawson and everybody at catholic community radio from your friends here at ewtn all right going back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN let's go to mike in luddington michigan listening on the great luddington catholic radio hello mike blessed advent to you what's on your mind today sir right back at you you guys do a great job thank Thank you. you thank you my question is, is there a certain uh, way or guidelines or some kind of synchronization to reading the Bible? <laughs> yeah, the answer to the or, question is yes, there sure is. So, I mean, you can always start at the beginning and read to the end, I and mean, there's nothing that prevents you from doing that. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you start in that way and read to the end, it's a confusing book because it, it, it covers thousands of years and multiple genre different theological traditions, and so it's, uh, it is helpful to have a guide. It's helpful to have a guide. Uh, there's a wonderful book for Catholics who are just starting out with biblical study. It's by John Bergsma, and it's called Bible Study Basics for Catholics, and I highly recommend it to anyone who's going to uh, dive into the mysteries of sacred scripture. Uh, you know, I think personally, it's, if you've, you're picking up the Bible for the first time, it'd be nice to start with the Gospels, honestly, in the person of Jesus, because Christ is the key the interpretive key to the whole thing. Now, there is a problem with that, and that is that the the Gospels start in the middle of the story, yeah. and and they they say some things that are not intelligible without the context of the Old Testament. So, for example, John the Baptist and Jesus show up on the scene seemingly out of nowhere, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near." And you don't have any idea what they're talking about. You don't know what the kingdom of heaven is, and you won't know what the kingdom of heaven is until you've read the Old Testament prophets. So a lot of people pick them up and they read the kingdom of heaven here and they think, well, he must be talking about heaven, meaning like where you go when you die. Nope, not doing that. He's talking about something different. Mm. And you don't, don't, you don't really understand that until you go back and read um, the later prophets and the, and the major prophets, and then you have some clue what he's talking about. But still, nevertheless, let's start with the person of Jesus. Um, in the Old Testament, I think it's often helpful to start with the historical books. You can read the Pentateuch straight through, read Genesis to Deuteronomy straight through, Joshua, Judges. Uh, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, um, and uh, that'll take you a while. 
Um, and then uh, and make sure you kind of get that timeline in your head. I mean, I know when I was began to study the Bible in earnest, I, I went into a classroom and I got out the chalk and a chalkboard and I started writing out the timeline as I was reading and, and trying to, okay, this patriarch begat that patriarch yeah. and trying to get the sequence of who's who in Scripture laid out and and uh, you sort of write out the timeline for myself. Getting getting that historical timeline in your head is very, very helpful to hang everybody else on. If you know the major events in the biblical story, you know, from the creation and the call of Abraham and the Exodus and the Davidic kingdom and the the, the division of the kingdom after Solomon and then uh, the Assyrian exile and then the Babylonian exile and then, of course, uh, the Maccabean revolt and then, and then the arrival of Christ in the Christian church. You've got to have to get those events laid out in your head. And then when you read the prophets, uh, you can you can situate them in your mind someplace on that timeline. Oh, this is an 8th century prophet, and mm-hmm. he wrote during the reign of Hezekiah, or this is a exilic prophet, and he wrote from Mab- Babylon. You know, getting that, that's very helpful for the interpretation if you kind of know where they fall on the timeline. Very good. And you may want to check uh, EWTN's religious catalog and uh, look up uh, Jeff Cavins and the Bible Timeline. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. He's he's put out a number of uh, wonderful resources that will, you know, so that you don't get bogged down uh, in you know, something that's not really germane to, as you say, the timeline. Mike, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Rick now, a first-time caller from Illinois listening on WSFI. Hello, Rick. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Uh, my question is, what gave the Pope the authority for the Catholic Church to start blessing same-sex marriage? Well, nothing did, and they don't. And the Pope has not given permission to bless same-sex marriages. And that is a, that is a, that is a misinterpretation of recent events. Uh, specifically, what the Pope said that priests can do, and they're not obligated to do, and they have to use pastoral prudence in order to do, is that if people who are involved in a homosexual relationship approach a minister of the church and ask for a blessing, that priests may, under certain circumstances, bless the person but not the union. Okay. And he's been very specific that nothing about that act of blessing should be construed as approval of gay marriage or gay unions. Okay. Rick, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Michael now, a first-time listener in Chicago as well, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Uh, Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, I think it's probably been covered uh, uh, throughout the other previous callers and maybe from uh, Dr. Anders' um, background. Um, just was wondering, and if you know, I'm involved in, uh, in uh, our company and my group and we're um, in the... Uh, in the business world, where they they, they gather like once a month um, but, uh, of a Bible study, if you will, and a Christmas, but it's usually a once a month every month. And you know, I think it's the 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 the, uh, the lead Bible uh, folks are Protestants and fundamentalists, and they don't. There's no denial about that. But their background is not seminary driven, and they're educated, but they're educated enough. Or they can take a uh, the Book of Romans or any epistle, especially. Um, you know, I don't want to lose. Uh, you know, you know, stop going because of friendship and business, or whatever. But however, uh, can they? Uh, is there a liability here that they can navigate, interpret the Bible different than Doctor Anders? Uh, you know, Doctor Anders can take a Book of Romans and see it from a different perspective, from a Catholic position versus a fundamentalist. 
now that he's been on both of both sides. And the other thing is that is that uh, uh, do they know? I mean, if they if they read a chapter in any of the uh, Bible, whether it's uh, Paul's letters or what have you, is there a, a danger that they may interpret it and see it from their own perspective, their own fundamentalist Protestant view? And this is what Paul is trying to say versus what. You know, Dr. Anders can read it the same way, and, and he sees it yeah, in a different way. Yeah, I'm with you. I understand. Uh-oh. Thank you very Is much there a for the question. involved in this? Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So almost certainly, almost certainly, your friends approach Bible study with uh, at least three presuppositions, three prejudices that are not borne out by the Bible them- by itself, but are rather inherited from their Protestant tradition. They are unaware that they have these prejudices, but I guarantee you there are prejudices that deeply constrain the way they read the Bible. Um, The first prejudice that they have is the idea that God gave us the Bible to be a rule of faith for the church. What I mean by that is they think that God's plan for teaching Christians about the Christian faith was to give them the Bible, and that the Bible is sufficient to do that job. Nothing in the Bible says that. That's something that Martin Luther made up. And so it's forcing the book to do a job that God never intended the book to do. And that, that will constrain the way you read it. Now, I'll give you a real practical uh, example of how that works out. Protestants, because they think that the Bible was given by God to be the sufficient rule of faith for the church, and that's all you need, right? When they raise a question about, say, morals or theology— they think that they can necessarily find the answer in the Bible. And if they don't find the answer, then the question is irrelevant. All right? And so what that does, particularly in the realm of morality, is it leaves huge realms of human behavior as morally irrelevant. And I'll give you a place where the rubber really hits the road, and that's in human sexuality. And so because the Bible doesn't say much explicitly about say, the, the, the mode of sexual intercourse appropriate between married people. It is common for Protestants to say, well, since the Bible doesn't speak really explicitly on that question, that means it's anything goes among married people. And the Catholic Church has an entirely different view. It, it does not say it's anything goes. It says that there are specific ways you have to conduct yourself in your sexual relationships. Otherwise, you are at grave risk of dehumanizing one another and instrumentalizing one another and making uh, a mockery of a beautiful uh, human act. Uh, but that attitude that says everything I need is in the Bible leaves things like human sexuality undefined and therefore to the Protestant a matter that's morally neutral or morally irrelevant. Right. And that makes a huge difference in the way you live your life. Sexuality is just one issue. We could come up with many more. So the Protestant prejudice that teaches the Bible is the rule of faith and sufficient for that job will constrain the way they read the Bible and the way they apply it to their life in ways that I think can do real genuine harm to the human person. Here's another problem with the way Protestants read the Bible. They, they typically hold to something called the doctrine of perspicuity, Right. This is the idea that the Bible is sufficiently clear that a person of goodwill and faith and humility with the Holy Spirit can pick it up and understand what they need to understand for their salvation. And, uh, I, I mean, 500 years of Protestant history should have put that myth to, to, to rest, <laughs> but nevertheless they still persist in holding mm, it. Yeah. And, and the doctrine of perspicuity, which is not a biblical doctrine, in fact, the Bible del- explicitly contradicts it, 
uh, St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, teaches that the Bible is not perspicuous, that it is not clear, and that it is certainly not plain. All right? Um, uh, but that doctrine of perspicuity, again, can lead to, can, can lead to gross harm. And I'll give you a, a really concrete historical example. The Old Testament law regulates the practice of slavery. And based on a literalist, uh, reformed hermeneutic of the Bible, 19th century Southern uh, uh, slavery apologists appealed to the, what they considered to be the plain sense of the Bible in defense of a horrific uh, social injustice. Wow. Right? Because they thought that the Bible should be taken its face value and its sort of plain denotative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and since it seems to regulate and condone slavery, then that must make the institution okay. Well, the Catholic faith has never read the Bible that way, has never thought the Bible should be read in its straightforward, denotative, literal sense, as if that were the final word on you know, all matters of, of morality or whatever. And, uh, and in fact, Jesus and Paul both explicitly deny that, and they, they teach that the Old Testament law uh, needs to be relativized in light of the incarnation and the principle of love and the teaching of the church and all the rest of it, right? So that principle of perspicuity—excuse me, perspicuity—can lead to real injustice against human persons, right? By taking the Bible in a very naive way. Then the final prejudice that I would like to mention that most Protestants will bring to the interpretation of Scripture is that they. They take Martin Luther's understanding of the book of Romans and the book of Galatians specifically as normative. So when Luther reads St. Paul and Paul says that a man is justified by faith and not by works of the law, they have a specific understanding of what works of the law means that rules out morality as having anything to do with our salvation or our acceptance by God. And that opinion that Luther has about the meaning of Paul's epistle is something that he made up. So we don't find it for 1,500 years anywhere out throughout the world, but Luther makes it up. And, and, and because that doesn't sit with the rest of the Bible, see, most of the Bible is about ethical exhortations, about moral exhortation. You must do this if you would live. Because they bring Luther's understanding of works and, and faith to their interpretation of the entire Bible, it really emasculates the entire Scripture. Luther had to invent a hermeneutical principle, he called it the law-gospel hermeneutic, that enabled him to denude the Bible of its moral authority in 99% of cases. Wow. Right? Uh, He said, for example, in his preface to the New Testament that Christians make a mistake if they read the Gospels as if Jesus were a second Moses or a lawgiver. And that's what Luther said, go read his preface to the New Testament. Mm Mm-hmm when emphatically Jesus is a second Moses and a lawgiver as presented in the Gospel of Matthew. But because that that didn't fit with Luther's prejudice about Paul, he had to invent a hermeneutic that vitiated the plain sense of Jesus' teaching. All right, so those three doctrines that almost all Protestants will hold as they approach the reading of the Bible, and they're not aware that they hold, and they'll just assert like they're matters of fact— Will, will certainly distort the way they read the Bible and apply it to their lives. Um, and so if I'm in that room, um, all kinds of things are going to be asserted that couldn't be asserted without those prejudices. And I, as a Catholic, I'm going to say, well, hang on a second, bud. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be calling a lot of that into question, a lot of it. So, yes, almost certainly your friends are going to read the Bible in a distorted way 
that accords neither with sound exegetical principles or with uh, the history of the Christian tradition or the Catholic faith. What you're going to do about that? Well, that's a different question. You could go because you think it's politically advantageous in your job to go and sit there and smile, all right? You could go and study up some of your Catholic commentaries before you walk in the door and offer another opinion. I'll leave that up to you. All right. And Michael, we hope that's helpful for you. If you want to uh, listen to this broadcast again, check out the podcast. We'll have that posted for you in a couple of hours at EWTN.com slash radio. It's called a communion here on EWTN a little later on this afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern. It's the 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown continuing, looking back at Al's top interviews of the year. Always a fascinating way to uh, wrap up the year. Check it out today at 4 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Joseph now in Melbourne, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Joseph, uh, blessed Advent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Joseph in Melbourne, Florida, are you there? Why don't we put him on hold, if you would. Let me get to an email from Corey. How is the Eucharist and the celebration of the Mass tied to apostolic succession? Yes, the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass are tied to apostolic succession insofar as you must have a validly ordained priest to effect the, uh, uh, the sacrifice and to, and to validly consecrate the Eucharist. And you don't have a validly ordained priest if you don't have a validly ordained bishop with apostolic succession to ordain him. Okay. Corey, thanks so much for your email. We're going to try Joseph again in Melbourne, Florida. Joseph, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you. Sure. Go go right ahead, sir. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for taking my call. Um, the question that I have is, the same question was, was asked to Zechariah uh, as was to, to the Virgin Mary, that for Zechariah, his wife was going to very son, and he questioned that because they were both uh, advanced in age. And Mary uh, questioned it because she had known no man, but Mary was punished, but Zechariah was punished, but Mary was not. Uh, and he thought on that. Yeah, I thanks. I appreciate it. So I think what we have to conclude is that Zacharias doubted that God would fulfill his word. Mary did not doubt that God would fulfill his word. She wanted details on the how. Yeah, big difference. Big difference. Okay. Hope that's helpful for you, Joseph. Thanks for your call from Melbourne. Here's one now from Frederick, an email. How is the Catholic understanding of transubstantiation so much different from the Lutheran understanding? Why can't Lutherans receive the Eucharist? Yes, so uh, the, the second question is a non sequitur with respect to the first. In Uh other words, it is not simply because Lutherans have a different understanding of the real presence that they cannot receive Holy Communion. You see, I am a Catholic, and I believe in transubstantiation, and yet I may not safely receive Holy Communion in the Catholic Church if I'm not properly disposed. So believing in transubstantiation is not enough to licitly or safely receive the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Even if Lutherans confess transubstantiation, they still wouldn't be able to receive Communion in the Catholic Church. Um... Uh, they wouldn't be able to receive communion in the Catholic Church because they place themselves outside of the Church jurisdiction. And uh, to to participate in the sacrifice of the Mass worthily, uh, one must make confession of one's sin, uh-huh. and the Church has to has to validate 
that you're properly disposed through that verdict of absolution. And because Protestants don't submit to the church's tribunal, it is impossible for the Catholic Church to pass judgment about them. So it is not the case that we exclude Protestants because we are judging them. On the contrary, we exclude Protestants because we refuse to pass judgment on them. I see. By passing judgment on Catholics, the Church can say, you can go to communion, you can't go to communion. You can go to communion, you can't go to communion. You're properly disposed, you're not properly disposed. We don't do that with Protestants. We don't do that. And so they can't. it's not safe for them to come. Secondly, going to communion in the Catholic Church for a Catholic means testifying in a ritual way that you believe that this is the church that Christ founded and you would and you adhere to what she teaches. Protestants don't think that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus, and they don't believe what she teaches. And so to receive communion in the Catholic Church is to testify against themselves. It's to be involved in a performative contradiction. Why would we invite people to testify against themselves? That's not doing them any favors. It's not an act of charity to invite them to testify against themselves. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't think of a reason in good faith why a Protestant would want to commune in the Catholic Church unless they misunderstand what we mean by the act of communion. Or, even worse, perhaps they, they wish to relegate the Catholic faith to yet one other Christian denomination and assert by their communion, hey, we're no different from you. Well, they can think that all day long, but it's <laughs> not fair of them to use our sacraments to assert that. Sure. Right. Um, but as far as why do Lutherans not hold the Catholic view of transubstantiation, um, it's because Luther had a really powerful distaste for the philosophy and metaphysics of Aristotle. And uh, he, he, he believed that Aristotle was as far from Christian theology as dark is from light, and that the Catholic Church's use of Aristotelian terminology to define the nature of the change was a kind of uh, um, a kind of uh, cavorting with paganism, and he he would have nothing of Aristotle in his Eucharistic doctrine. All right, and uh, thank you, Frederick, for your email. Mark is listening to us in Texas on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Hey there, Mark. Uh, blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes, I am. I am very interested in you know, digging deeper into uh, Catholicism, Catholicism, and, and moving from Protestant. Wanting to know, without buying a huge set of books, is there a good book of the early church fathers that I could get all in one volume type of thing? Um, okay, yeah. So the problem with a one volume is that they wrote a lot more than one volume. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, they wrote voluminously, and any vo any single volume you get is going to be a massively contracted, you know, highly edited account. It's really not going to allow the, uh, the, the, the organic development of the Father's thought to appear in front of you. It's kind of like asking, you know, is there a, is there a one-volume compendium of, say, American literature Whoa. where I can really get my head wrapped around this, this project called American literature? I mean— you really can't do it, you know. Um, but I can give you I can give you some resources that I think would help. Uh, one would be uh, Mike Aquilina, friend of EWTN, has a book called has a collection called The Fathers of the Church, and you might you might dive into Mike Aquilina's Fathers of the Church. Uh, Pope Benedict um, gave a series of Wednesday audiences. Uh, that is, he he gave lectures in the Vatican every Wednesday for several uh -huh. years 
on uh, on great leaders of the Christian Church, and uh, you can find a collection from Ignatius Press called The Church Fathers from Clement of Rome to Augustine. Um, it's about a one- or two-page discussion of each of the individual fathers and what their contributions are. Uh, but personally, I don't think there's any substitute for reading the fathers themselves, and I can help you here because you don't have to read all of them, at least not all at once. And I think you should begin with Augustine of Hippo, and if you've never read it, you should start with his uh, confessions. Augustine's confessions are not only a great work of uh, Catholic literature, but they're a classic of world literature. It's the first uh, intellectual autobiography in the history of the Western world and a literary classic. And very accessible, too. Very accessible. There you go. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for your call. Interesting question here from Colleen. My friend's son claims to talk to the dead. How should I respond to this as a Catholic? Well, it depends on whether he thinks they're talking back. Ah. Right. See, uh, most Catholics talk to the dead. In fact, if you're a good Catholic, I suppose all Catholics talk to the dead. I talk to the dead constantly. I'm always praying to saints. Uh, I'm praying to my dead relatives and loved ones and, and revered mentors, though they're not canonized. I have a strong hope that they're at heaven or at least in purgatory and that my prayers to them are not in vain. And so talking to the dead is one of the great things that Catholics get to do, and it's highly enjoyable and, and deeply beneficial, and I strongly recommend it. If, however, he thinks the dead are talking back and he is attempting to conjure them involving some kind of necromancy or channeling or spiritism, that is a superstition that is forbidden by the first commandment, and, uh, and he, should not, he should not do. He should not do. Um, and, you know, in terms of if he doesn't listen to the church and he doesn't listen to sacred scripture, you, you might consider an argument I once made long before I was Catholic. When I was in high school, some of the girls in my high school got into the Ouija board and started trying to talk to dead people. Uh-oh. And, uh, and even though I wasn't Catholic, I thought it was kind of crazy. And because they would say, well, it said this and it said that and it says it's this person and it used to be that person. And I said to them, I said, uh, if you were walking down town Birmingham and a disembodied voice hollered at you, you know, from a dark alleyway, hey, little girl, come here, I've got some candy for you. Would you listen? They're like, oh, I'd, I'd run like heck in the other direction. And we're like, so why do you listen if the disembodied voice comes out of a board? Good point. Like, there's, there's no prima facie reason to trust the, the representation that some disembodied voice says to you. Like, this is just, it's just foolhardiness yeah. from any point of view. Colleen, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hope that's helpful for you. Dr. David Andrews, thanks, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday live for you on EWTN Radio, and that is at 2 p.m. Eastern. Check it out every Monday through Friday. You can also check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to our next visit. Hopefully that's with you on Wednesday on God Bless.